Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Good morning, Lake Forest. That wasn't bad, but you know, we're, y'all are afraid of the front rows, you're a little dispersed, so we need a little bit more enthusiasm. Say good morning, Lake Forest. Good morning and thank you. My name is Rachel, as Aaron said, and thank you for having me back. I'm always mildly surprised that that's the case and um, always delighted to be here with you. I do, in fact, now I'm 100% in the Lake Forest tribe. If Presbyterians were a gang, I would roll with you. Um, and so I do love any chance I get to come back. You are blessed with a remarkable pastor and theologian and servant leader. And so I learned something from Aaron every time I come. And it is just always—it feels a little bit like home being back here. So thanks for having me. Um, word on the street is that you are in an Advent series. What child is this? And you're going through the I Am statements of John. Is that right? Hopefully you're aware of that since we're two weeks in. Um, but that's what, that's what we're doing. If it's not, so it's too bad. Um, but so that is what we're going to do this morning. But before then, I just wanted to share with you a reminder that has come up in my own life, right? It is the holidays. We are around family members we are not usually around and reminded of the ways we are like them and ways that we wish that we were not. Um, and that has become apparent in my own life because if there's one thing that tunes do not do, it is wait for anything ever at any time for any reason. Uh, we, just, we just don't do it. My family does not do well with that. We don't do lines. We don't do crowds. And we just, we just don't wait. Um, and that is further evidenced by the fact that since moving to North Carolina a year and a half ago, I've gotten pulled over twice. Um, second time was on a student mission trip. <laughs> I want to say that I'm not proud of that. Just maybe a little bit. And I'm not saying that I should be. But case in point, uh, waiting's not really my jam. It's not really my thing. And yet, that is so much of Christmas, right? I mean, Christmas, this, this really just comes to the forefront in this whole uh, season of, of Advent and of Christmas. And kids, you guys are well aware of this. If you, were ever, if you were ever a kid at any point, you know this. That you guys, do you remember what that feeling of just being so pumped for Christmas? You were pretty sure you were going to die before it got here. Like, you're just so excited it might actually kill you. Uh, and, and that is just the midst of what we are in right now. We are waiting. But we should ask and stop for just a moment to think about what are we waiting for? Because a secular person is going to say, well, we're waiting for Christmas Day, which means family, food, presents, not necessarily in that order. And a, a Christian person is going to say, hopefully, we're waiting for baby Jesus, And family, food, and presents, and not necessarily in that order. But what if there's actually more to the story of what we're waiting for? What if that's a piece of the picture of the puzzle of this season, but it's not the full picture? What if there's more to it? And that's what I want to invite us to explore this morning. So we are going to dive right into John chapter 11, if you're old school and got your Bible with you. Now is the time to turn to John chapter 11. Uh, This particular narrative is just beautiful and magnificent and long. And so we're going to shorten it down a little bit in true Presbyterian fashion. So I'm going to give you a little backstory before we jump in. So Jesus uh, has three really, really close friends uh, that are all siblings. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They're his tribe. They're his people. 
He loves them in a really deeply personal way. And he gets a call from Mary saying, Jesus, Lazarus is really, really sick. Bad sick. Dying sick. So get back here and do your thing. And Jesus gets this word. He's out of town. And he does not do the thing that you're supposed to do when you get that phone call. Right? Because when you get the call that somebody you care about is in the ER, what do you do? You get in your car and you drive like a maniac and you get there as soon as you possibly can. Jesus doesn't do that. He really loves this guy. He really loves these sisters, but he waits. And he does it on purpose. And he has a good reason. Uh, but he literally waits for Lazarus to die and be really, really dead, like four days worth of dead. And then he finally goes and he shows up. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. All right, we are going to start at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here... My brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And this is the word of the Lord. So Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. There's a lot of feelings going on in these 20 verses or so. And I know that makes Presbyterians uncomfortable. This is a great time to get over it because there's a lot of emotions happening. And scholars are actually kind of, kind of in disagreement over this in terms of just what exactly is the nature of these interactions. There's a lot of people moving around. That's uh, a pretty high-paced narrative, right? And so when, when Martha comes up to Jesus, is she chewing him out? Jesus, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. Is she mad at him or is she just deeply grieving Right, and then you have Mary who doesn't come. Is she, is she hiding from Jesus? Is she mad at him? Or is she just maybe getting kind of emotionally ready for that conversation with him? And then there's a lot going on in Jesus, too. Jesus, is he, is he frustrated? Is he angry? Is he sad? Like, what is, what is going on with all these feelings? And 
I think a safe bet overall is that it's all of the above, right? And if you've ever lost somebody really close to you, you get that, right? You're feeling everything and nothing all at the same time. Everything is just crazy and you're just kind of overwhelmed, don't know what to think, what to feel. That's just kind of how it works. Um, and Jesus is in the midst of this too. And, and if you are interacting with someone who's deeply grieving, who is in shock, here's a really stupid question to ask. How are you doing? Don't say that. Like, how do you, how do you answer that? Right? The, the much better question is, what are you feeling? What's the range you're experiencing right now? Because it's probably anger, sorrow, grief, relief, guilt, and a host of who knows what else. Right? That's just kind of what it means to be human in these really dark spaces of loss that we encounter in life. And, and Jesus experiences this himself in a really interesting, really personal way, right? If you, just, just as an example, look at verse 33, right? Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also, and he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And this is nerd alert. If we have not met before, I am a nerd of the highest order, so I dig this stuff. So bear with me. Um, but, but so the Greek word in this, in this text, actually, in a lot of your Bibles, it probably says deeply moved, uh, but the, the original word actually has to do with the sound of, like, the snorting of a horse, which, as you might expect, translates to being angry, being mad. Jesus is all riled up, which we're, not, we're trying to kind of piece this together. Like, what is it he's actually mad at? If he's really upset, if he's actually angry, what's the source of that? I think he's mad at death. He's so outraged at the despair of all these people that he really cares about. The fact that at least in this little moment, death is winning. And he knows it's not going to win forever. That's why he's there, right, to take care of that. But in this moment, he sees in full force and experiences in his own self that this is not the way he created this world to be. And in his power and sovereignty, he has allowed these things to come to pass. And he's going to make it all right. But in this moment... This is just not what it's supposed to be like. And he is angry. That's a holy kind of anger at the, the real brokenness of this world that we live in. And the Lord has seen and experienced that in himself, which is a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. So this is the scene that Jesus is in. It's really chaotic. It's really high-paced. It's frenzied, right? Mary and Martha are really upset. There's this whole crowd of people whose job is to be there and be sad and to cry. And so that's all happening. And it's probably loud and noisy. And the disciples are all anxious and nervous. Part of what we didn't read before this is they're freaking out because they're like, Jesus, if we go there, they're going to kill you and probably us. And Jesus is like, I'm going. And they're like, fine, I guess, if we have to. But... They're not thrilled about it, right? So they're just kind of uncomfortable. So there's just a lot going on. And then the camera zooms in at verse 20, and the pace slows down to just a conversation between two people and kind of the spinning chaos of everything going on. So let's read that again together, if, if, if you would. Turn back to verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, 
even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? There's a lot going on in that little bitty conversation. And for us to unpack it, we're going to have to do a little backstory. So we're going to talk about death. Not to rain on your festive little Christmas parade. Uh, But here's the thing, people. You're going to die. Some of you sooner rather than later. That's reality. That's the world that we're in. And it colors how we live, doesn't it? And so if you, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament was actually kind of confused about this. Uh, people weren't really sure. There was not a fully developed, fully articulated understanding of what happens after you die. Uh, the language in the Old Testament uh, is largely Sheol, uh, which is kind of this shadowy underworld place that kind of everybody goes and you just don't really know what happens when you get there. Um, which is a pretty amazing thing because the reality for the people of Israel is that for all intents and purposes, your life with God was over when you died. It was just for this time on earth and it was still worth it. They didn't have the incentive brownie points if you get to go to heaven. They didn't know. It wasn't, it wasn't that that wasn't an option, but they just didn't have enough information to assume otherwise. And so there was just a lot of ambiguity. And we, we do see uh, in Hosea, for example, I think we got this up here, there were some, some texts throughout the Old Testament that hints at the reality of resurrection life. I'll deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Right? So we see this language, but they didn't really know that at that point. It hadn't developed enough yet. So death was a reality, and they knew God was in control over it, but they didn't really know a lot else. All right, so by the New Testament, things have shifted. Uh, there's kind of this understanding of heaven and hell like we, we're, we're a little bit more familiar with. Uh, this idea of the judgments of the righteous and the wicked, the eternal kind of existence of your soul. So people started to kind of get on board with that. Uh, that was the thought process of, of Pharisaical Judaism. Everybody say Pharisaical Judaism. You feel classy, don't you? Yeah. If you think that that sounds uh, like Pharisee, you're right. So that's, that's what they would have believed. And interestingly enough, Jesus had most in common theologically with the Pharisees and anybody else. All right. So, so that's consistent with, with the New Testament thought of kind of what happens uh, when you died. But not everybody thought that. So the Sadducees, they're another uh, Jewish flavor. And they just thought that you died and that was it. You're dead. Worms eat you. And there were a lot of pagans that thought that too, and they had some other positions. But that's why Paul writes in in 1 Thessalonians, he's writing to Christians. And this is what he says, uh, if we can get that up there. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Because a lot of people thought that. You died and you're done. That's a pretty hopeless place to be. And he's saying, Christians, why are you acting like that? That's not our story. That's not reality. But before we get into this, I think we need to ask, what do we think about death? What do we as Americans, 21st century, 2019, almost 2020 Americans, think about what happens when you die? And here's the deal. I think we're actually really bad at it. We're really bad about thinking about, talking about death. And part of that is with our obsession with medicine and nutrition and health and beauty, we're still sort of kind of convinced that one day, if we're lucky, we'll be immortal. And, like, we kind of laugh, but it's true, right? We're doing everything to push the clock back. And because of the modern world, we could do that a little better than they used to, but, but dang it, we still can't quite kick death, can we? And so we're always surprised that it still gets us, which 
in case you're wondering, is not a healthy way to deal with anything ever. Um, so we are not very good at this, but I think the best articulation I have seen of how Americans actually think about death comes out of The Good Place. Have anybody, has anybody seen The Good Place? Yeah, yeah, if you've not watched it, do it. It is a fascinating commentary um, on American culture right now. It's a comedy series, which is interesting because comedy actually reveals a lot about who we really are, doesn't it? Uh, that's why we find it funny. And so this show, this year, uh, was nominated for the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series and a bunch of other Emmys and a bunch of other globe, uh, Golden Globes, which means people are watching this. Right? A lot of people are watching this, which means it resonates. So here's what I think most Americans actually think about death. I don't know if what I'm going to say is going to hurt or help, but screw it. Do you know what's really happening right now? You're learning what it's like to be human. All humans are aware of death. So we're all a little bit sad. All the time. That's just the deal. Sounds like a crappy deal. Well, yeah, it is. But we don't get offered any other ones. And if you try and ignore your sadness, it just ends up leaking out of you anyway. I've been there. And everybody's been there. So don't fight it. We're just a little bit sad all the time. That's just the deal. Most people in our country believe that. And I bet a lot of Christians believe that. And if we got that verse from Paul, throw that back up there. That's why Paul is writing to the, uh, to the Thessalonians. Uh, because he's saying, what are you doing? You're acting hopeless and you're not. Death isn't the end of the story. And yet in culture, that's kind of the reality that we're up against. Um, so some of you already know this, but um, back in when I was in seminary, I worked in an Italian jazz bar, which is another story for another day. And it's a great one, but we're not going to get into it. Um, but I had uh, my, my Italian boss was this New Englander to his core. He's just magnificent, you know. And um, he was a self-professed evangelistic atheist. Right. They don't pull punches in New England. You gotta love it, right? You know what you're dealing with. Um, and I eventually found out the reason for that is he had a four-year-old daughter who died 15 years ago to a rare blood disorder. And my initial assumption as to the source of this kind of, this kind of rabid atheism was anger at God. That he was frustrated and, and just couldn't get over that loss. But then just when I was about to leave, he made this offhand kind of comment of, you know why I'm an evangelistic atheist? I'm sharing the good news that there is no hell. That's not anger. That's fear. He is so afraid at the, the risk of his four-year-old ending up in hell. He would rather wish God out of existence than take that chance. That is grieving without hope. That is the world around us. That is the experience of the people you work with, and a lot of your family members, the people you go to school with. At best, we're a little bit sad all the time, and at worst, it's just despair. But what if those aren't the options? Because Jesus has a very different response to death. And this passage that we looked at today is one of the best examples of that. He models for us how we face death. In the words of Chaplain Budd, he went and he wept and he witnessed. So Chaplain Budd, whose real name is Hiram T. Pritchard III, big, big mustache, 
Um, he is the, the chaplain at Pamunkey Regional Jail, where I did my residency, and he was a paramedic for 45 years before then. So there's not a lot this man has not seen. And he is one of the most grace-filled people I've ever met. And he faces death all the time with the presence of Christ. And so in, in true Southern Baptist style, he's got his alliteration. So Jesus went and whipped and witnessed. Uh, and so when Jesus encounters death, first he shows up. Now granted, he dawdles a little bit, and there are kingdom reasons for that, but he gets there because presence is so much more powerful than we can ever imagine. And even though we know this, it's worth being reminded, just show up. You never know what God can do just with that. All right, and then, and then Jesus weeps. He cries. He's really upset. If any of y'all grew up in Sunday school and, can't, you know, you get free candy if you memorize Bible verses, I know you cheated with this one. John eleven thirty five. 35. It's the shortest one in the Bible. Does anybody remember what it is? Jesus wept. Yeah. And, and why does that get a whole verse all to itself? Because the Lord's grief is that important. Being sad is that important. Right? So, so when you do encounter a grieving person, don't try to cheer him up. Don't try to lighten the mood. Don't say trite, stupid things like, oh, we know God's got a plan and he works everything for good. Even though that's true, the 35-year-old widow does not need to hear that right now. You just need to be there and be really deeply sad. And then, at the right moment, in the right time, Jesus witnesses. And what he witnesses to is the most important thing that we can encounter as people. And ask me verse 25. So if you get your Bibles out, this is what the Lord says. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So what does this have to do with Advent? It has everything to do with Advent. Because this is the good news that Christianity has to offer. This is the hope. This is the whole Points. Do you know that, so here's another fun nerdy fact for you, in kind of other religious traditions and other yeah, strains of thought in the ancient world, this language of resurrection almost never shows up. You know why? Because it doesn't happen, right? Ancient people weren't stupid. They know that dead people die and then they don't come back. That's just how it works, right? Resurrection's not a thing. And they understood that. There, you die, and that's it, and there's no hope. But what if it's not? What if it's not it? And what if there's so much more? Because this is actually the foundational belief of Christianity. If you do not believe in the resurrection of the Lord, and the resurrection life, you are not a believer. You're, you've missed the boat. Right? That's the whole deal. Um, if, if you, again, if you grew up in church and you maybe knew the Apostles' Creed, that's kind of the baseline foundational the, uh, theological doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. That ends with, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The resurrection of the body, right? Not just your soul, not just floating around in a cloud. No, that's lame. It's not biblical. Your actual body, right? God wants to keep that, right? The resurrection, that's how they end the creed. And of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he goes so far as to write this. And Paul, in classic fashion, also does not pull any punches. Uh, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Yeah. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. You are lying about who God is. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact, but he did not raise him, if in fact, the dead are not raised. Paul is saying, if you don't actually believe that the Lord has risen from the dead, you're pathetic. Because there is no point to what you are saying. It doesn't make any sense. All of the nice inspirational things Jesus says in the Gospels have no actual power. There's no substance to it. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then death still wins. You die and that's it. If he has not risen from the dead, sin still reigns and you can't get out of it. And if he has not risen from the dead, then he is not who he says he is. He is not God. He does not have power to do anything about everything wrong with the world and everything wrong in you. And it's all a lie. It's all hopeless. And it's all pointless. You are wasting your time. That's the word of the Lord. But what if it is true? What if resurrection is real? What if it's the only hope? The only option? What if the resurrection life to come? What if life with God after this one is actually more real, more alive, more substantial than the one that you're living right now? And what if what you're experiencing right now is just a shadow, just the black and white version of what is one day going to be vivid, alive color? What if the best is yet to come? And what if that resurrection life that's coming is powerful enough to work its way backwards into what we're living now? What if it's that strong? And what if Jesus not only has the power to beat death, but all of its symptoms too? Because if Jesus is risen, and if he can beat death, he can beat the issues that are corroding your marriage, right? And if Jesus is risen, and if he has broken the chains of hell, he can break the chains of porn addiction or of alcohol addiction. And if he is risen, if he has squashed Satan, then he can comfort you in, in your loneliness and despair and anxiety. He can breathe in life and purpose and meaning back into your reality. If Jesus has beaten death, he can take care of all that other stuff. Resurrection life is not just about what happens when you die. It is for you right now. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. Because if Christ has risen, if he really is the resurrection and the life, that changes everything, doesn't it? And he's not done yet. He beat Satan on the cross. And he's still finishing the work that he finished on the cross because he's going to come back. And that is why this has everything to do with Advent. Because the Lord is coming back. Did you know that uh, Advent is actually about this much about baby Jesus and this much about the universe rescuing, butt-kicking, Satan-squashing King Jesus who's bringing an army back? That's actually been the story of the church. That's actually the tradition of Advent. Um, Most of the church calendar... Reminds you of the historical life of Jesus, right? In, in Easter, think about how, you know, we remember the Passion Week of the Lord. But Advent is really about remembering that the Lord is coming back. It's the second coming of Jesus 
that we're invited to remember, not just the first. You can get excited about the baby Jesus, but that's not even the best part. Right? That's just the intro to the good stuff. Because the Lord is not done. The best is yet to come. And so we're waiting. Christians are waiting people. It's kind of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Because we are citizens of another country. We're not home yet. We're not there yet. And we know it's coming, but until then, we got to wait. And we see this unfold in the story that we just read. I mean, think about it, all right? So Jesus gets the bad news that Lazarus is sick, and then Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up, and he makes this promise of resurrection life. But then it's still terrible. He, Lazarus is still dead. Jesus cries. He's angry. The world's still not the way it's supposed to be. And then Jesus delivers on his promise. But in this moment, right now, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we're still waiting. We're still at the funeral. With the wailing and the confusion and the frustration and the snot-nosed people, and we're just kind of still in that dark, lonely space waiting for resurrection. We're caught somewhere between dead Lazarus and resurrection life. And it's coming. It's coming soon. But we're not there quite yet. And so the question for us this Advent is how do we wait well? Because we don't do it passively. You're not sitting on your hands waiting for the Lord to come back. No, 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 no. You are invited into a resurrection life that is supposed to kick in right now. It already has because Jesus has risen, right? So that's already started. So you are called to live in expectation of what's coming. To live right now like a citizen of the country that you're really a part of. That's going to be here soon. So how do we wait well? Um... Again, talking kind of about this church calendar, church rhythm thing, right? Some of you may be familiar with Lent, right? That's the, the ramp up to Easter. Mardi Gras happens in New Orleans because they know they can't drink for 40 days. So they got to get it all out beforehand. <laughs> then Easter comes and they party again, right? So Lent is this season of repentance, of fasting, of, of just being mindful of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong in me and expectation of the party that's coming, which, sidebar... According to the church calendar, Easter is supposed to kick off 40 days of partying. Now, why we have left that out, everybody does the sad part, and then we don't do the fun part. So, y'all should fix that. I'm just saying. It's, it's, it's church tradition, so get on board. Um, but this season of, of repentance is actually what Advent is supposed to be, too. And we don't practice that as much, uh, but it's a time of reflecting, of waiting, of hoping, and of remembering that we're not quite there yet, that the Lord is coming back. And so, in this Advent season, I want to invite you to do two things. As I mentioned in the first service, I've been told that guest preachers are not allowed to challenge, they're only allowed to invite, so I'm inviting. Um, <laughs> and so, I invite you to one, what's something you could give up? This Advent season. Maybe it is a fast, like what you do in Lent. Maybe it's a media fast or chocolate or, you know, whatever. Uh, And again, you don't get brownie points in heaven for that. That's not the point. It's a reminder, right? Or what if it's giving up a little bit more of your money, a little bit more of your time to help your neighbor neighbor lady fix your screen porch? It doesn't have to be big. And for you mamas who I know are already at max capacity with all the stuff that you've got going on, maybe it's just 
being just a teeny bit more patient with those exasperating children who keep trying to get the Christmas presents early. All right, you don't have to overthink it. But what's a daily small thing you can give up to remember that the king of glory gave everything up to be a little baby to give you resurrection life? We're just forgetful people, so it's helpful to build these kinds of things into our day to remind us. The other thing I would invite you to do um, is to memorize and meditate on these verses. This is the thing I want you to add into your life. This is verses 25 and 26. And so what, what meditate means, the church has been doing this for a long, 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 long time. Basically means you chew on a verse one word at a time to suck all the good stuff out of it. Like what you do with an everlasting gobstopper. Right? Get through all the layers. Um, and so it would work something like this. Right? Think about I am. Where else in the Bible does that show up? Do you think that's important? Possibly relevant to what Jesus is trying to say about who he is and what he's going to do in the world? I am the, the resurrection, not a resurrection. Think there's any implications for that? Think the Lord might be inviting you into something by making that kind of a claim? You see all the good stuff you can get out of it just by one word at a time? All right. And I promise that if you chew on this stuff, just this, these little verses, every morning until Christmas morning, you will be blessed. Never hurts to infuse some resurrection life every chance you get into your day and into your mind and into your heart. Because it is a reality. It is the gift the Lord has already given you. And you are invited to live into what's already real. Resurrection life. This is the meaning of Christmas, people. Jesus came to give you resurrection life. Can I get a witness? So Jesus came to give you resurrection life. And he first came as a little baby. He got the job started there, but he is coming back in glory with an army to finish the job. So live fully alive, redeemed people of God, whom the Lord has called to himself. He is coming back for you. Behold, your king is coming soon. Let me pray for us.